As usual, we're starting off this episode with a student spotlight. This week, we're hearing from Nick Strait. My name is Nick Strait. I am a second year master's student at the College of Charleston, working in Dr. Heather Spaulding's lab. For my thesis, I am looking at the dynamics of stable isotopes and tissue nutrients in Hawaiian mesophotic macroalgae. Mesophotic reefs extend from the middle to the end of the photic zone, roughly 30 to 150 meters in depth. What's really cool about these reefs, particularly in Hawaii, is their high abundance of macroalgae which is unexpected since these areas are low light and oligotrophic. I'm interested in understanding how nutrients are influencing the abundance of macroalgae. To do this, I'm analyzing nitrogen-stable isotopes and percent nitrogen for mesophotic and shallow water macroalgal samples across the Hawaiian archipelago. Another really cool part of this project is I will be able to detect any anthropogenic input of nitrogen such as sewage or fertilizer. Algal tissue with higher N15 and percent N values can indicate these inputs, and this data could then be used to address management and pollution issues around Hawaii. Thanks for sending that in. If you're a student, send us a one-minute audio clip describing your research, and you might hear it on the show. Send a voice memo to info at bigbiology.org. Here's the episode. At the very earliest stages of development, a human and a crocodile look pretty much the same, just lumps of amorphous cells. Over the next several months, though, those lumps develop into vastly different creatures. This process of development and similar processes like limb regeneration are profound mysteries in biology. How do organisms know which cells go where? How do they make sure a limb or digit is long enough, but not too long? And how do we get from a string of information in the genome to an animal made up of billions of coordinated cells? I I gave a talk to a bunch of nine-year-olds at a a school once, and I I showed them an egg, and I asked what determines whether it's a dinosaur, a bird, or a snake that comes out of this egg. And everybody, even the nine-year-olds, immediately said, oh, it's the the genes, it's the genome, right? So so in theory, everybody knows this. But in reality, of course, uh, when you look at the genome, you don't see anything in there directly about symmetry type or organ number or size or eyes or any of that stuff. That's the voice of Mike Levin. He's a biologist at Tufts University who studies development in animal body plants. He's trying to understand how organisms use electric fields to direct cells to move to the places they belong in the body. All cells have passageways built into their membranes that allow ions like sodium, potassium, and calcium to flow in and out. These passageways are called voltage-gated ion channels because local electric fields determine when they open and when they shut. These electric fields also represent a kind of memory. The current state of the ion channels encodes something about the past state of the electrical field. Mike says that many organisms use these electric fields to map out their own bodies. Mike uses a lot of different species in his work, but especially flatworms called planaria. Flatworms reproduce asexually by latching onto something and then ripping themselves in half. The head portion typically grows a tail, and the tail portion grows a head, so that both halves become whole again. Remarkably, they use electric fields to figure out whether heads or tails are missing. When Mike and his colleagues prevented cells from talking to each other electrically, they found that the half-worms grew back the wrong parts. When the electric fields were distorted, the head half could be made to grow a second head and the tail to grow a second tail. His conclusion was that electric fields are a key component of the animal's body plan. The fields that cells experience determine what form of animal they make. This is an amazing example of how organisms encode critical information outside their genome. What's even more remarkable is that this encoded information gets passed on to offspring. When Mike cut a two-headed worm in half, it regenerated two more two-headed worms. 
As previous big biology guest Paul Davies says, uh, And so the information about their physical form, their morphology, two heads or two tails, is propagated down from one generation to the next. But they have identical DNA. The genes are exactly the same in the two-tailed worms or the two-headed worms. That information is inherited. We still don't fully understand the mechanism. Now, you might be thinking, fine, but these are just weird small worms. Complex organisms like us and other vertebrates don't do such things. Wrong. Mike has shown that tadpoles use electric fields to figure out where to put the eyes, the mouth, the ears, and other key parts of the face. And if he distorts the electric field near a frog's gut in just the right way, he could cause eyes to develop there. On this episode of Big Biology, we're talking to Mike about how electric fields affect the information organisms inherit, how that changes the way we think about evolution, and how organisms are and are not like computers. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. You're listening to Big Biology. So, Mike, it's just a, a total thrill to have you on this show, um, and we we want to talk about um, a couple of your papers and just sort of run a, a, some some big ideas by you that we've been kicking around and and talk a little bit about how they relate to some of our what what our prior guests have said. Um, but just just to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today, I want to um, maybe try to articulate what I see as a as a key biological problem that you that you've been working on really hard for a, a number of years, and that's. Um, you know, maybe the fundamental problem in evo-devo biology, and that is how, how do developing bodies produce the right tissues in the right place at the right time? And, you know, so if we take an organism like, like me, I'm a bilaterian, so I have left-right symmetry, and I have a head and a tail, essentially, and some limbs along the way. And as I was developing from a fertilized zygote, um, my my embryo made all the right decisions, or, or yeah, I guess maybe questionable decisions. Yeah, about, the presumptions there. Be careful <laughs> about where to put the the main parts in my body. And so, um, how do how do embryos do that overall? Yeah, th that's a great question. But it, the the problem is actually even much tougher than that because in standard embryogenesis, you're starting out from the same reliable uh, state, meaning a, a single fertilized egg, and you're ending up at uh, ideally a uh, the same uh, invariant outcome, which is a normal uh, human morphology. So that that that's, that process is hard enough, but we actually have uh, in regulative development and in regeneration an even harder problem of being able to start at different starting states. Let's say a salamander limb that's kind off at different positions. And the biggest problem of all is how does it know to stop? So in a process like that, right, you have to, it, it can't be just, just be hardwired because you, because you have to uh, recreate exactly what's missing, no more, no less. And then you have to stop when the correct structure has been, uh, has been produced. So this issue of how do they know when to stop and how do they know when to build is, is, is super critical. And it's actually even, even more complex than simple embryogenesis. So, so you would say that, that, understanding regeneration is sort of a step beyond just understanding just understanding embryogenesis. I would actually say that I think the regeneration is the fundamental thing. I think the ability of cells to get together to implement anatomical homeostasis, the ability to reduce error between whatever is going on now and the pattern that you would like to make is the fundamental property. Everything else is an offshoot of that. So normal development is an easy version of that problem. But I think fundamentally that is what uh, multicellular life is all about. It's yeah. coordinating you know, the, the, the goals of individual uh, cells into one large uh, morphogenetic goal of the body. And this 
this automatically gives rise to both development and regeneration. So maybe can you walk us through one of the examples of regeneration? I mean, to sort of articulate the nuts and bolts of what you're learning about how this happens and and how animals or whatever example you want to use knows how to stop. Yeah, so so I'll give I'll give one example uh, that um, we found in frogs several several years ago, and then and then we can talk about planaria where I think we actually know a little bit even more about what's happening. So the the f- f- uh, tadpoles of course have to uh, transition to frogs, and if you look at their face, a tadpole face doesn't look like a frog face, and so they have to rearrange their tissues. So the eyes have to move, the jaws have to move, the nostrils, all all the different organs of the head have to move around. And it used to be thought that what the genetic encodes is a hardwired set of movements. So every every tadpole looks the same, every frog looks the same. So if you just remember where every, how much every uh, organ is supposed to move in which direction, you should be okay, right? So what we ended up doing is testing this this hypothesis because we suspected there was more plasticity to it, and we made what we call Picasso tadpoles. And we'll tell you, I can tell you in a minute about how, how we make them. But but basically everything is in the wrong place. So the eyes are on the back of the head, the nostrils are off to the side, the mouth is, is key, you know off to the side, like everything is scrambled. And the amazing thing is that those animals basically uh, make quite normal looking frog faces. And that's because the organs move around in sort of novel and unnatural uh, paths and continue to move around until they reach a correct frog face. Now, this is remarkable. It tells you that the genetics does not, in fact, encode a hardwired system that always moves the same way. way more flexible. Way more flexible. What it gives you is a system that A, knows what a correct frog face looks like, and B, has this kind of error minimization loop where it will continue to move around until it gets to a, uh, a particular pattern. And obviously you can overwhelm it, but that's what it does. Wow. So many questions. So, so first of all, how do you scramble up the, the tadpole features? And then, right. and then the second question is what, what is this error minimization routine that happens? Yes. So um, how do we scramble the face? Uh, basically, one of the main um, uh, sides of, of research that we have in our in our lab has to do with the understanding of bioelectric communication and how cell networks use electricity to make decisions about what they're going to build. It's, it's very similar to uh, what happens in the brain when, when neural networks make decisions, store memories, and so on. And so it turns out, and this is uh, my colleague Danny Adams and I um, discovered this uh, some, uh, some years back, that actually the major organs of the face in the developing frog, and it turns out other animals as well, are uh, determined by the positions of specific bioelectrical pre-patterns. We call this the electric face. So literally, you can look down on the surface of uh, a developing frog embryo face before any of the genes come on that that pattern the eyes and the mouth and all of that. And if you use uh, something that we developed um, called uh, voltage-sensitive fluorescent dye technology, which basically just tells you where all the voltage gradients are, you can see where the different organs are going to be formed. This this electrical pre-pattern is a scaffold for what's going to happen. So what we found out was that this electrical pre-pattern doesn't just tell you where things are going to be, but it's actually instructive. So if you move it around, and by move it around, I don't mean move the cells, I mean change the electrical distribution across the um, across the, the nascent uh, ectoderm, what you will be able to do is cause these organs to form elsewhere. So one of our early applications was to take the normal eye-inducing electrical signal, put it somewhere else, for example, on the gut, and make a complete eye on the tadpole's gut. And so where, when you move these patterns, the cells, the, that pattern is a map that the cells use to know where to build stuff. And if the, and if the map is off, the cells will build. And, and is it as simple as, you know, this this sort of voltage difference across a cell membrane specifies an eye and some other voltage level specifies something else is it 
Is it that simple? We that, that, That's a hypothesis we toyed with in the beginning. Um, it turns out, no, it's not um, that simple. And uh, it, it it's actually, uh, it, it, the bioelectric code is not a single cell property. And if you think about it, it has to be that way because an eye has all kinds of internal tissues. It has complex structures. There's simply not enough information. Yeah, so it's in electrical coupling cells. among cells that are going to make these things. Correct. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's very much like the way uh, neural networks store uh, information by, by virtue of their electrical communication. It's a network property of many cells. It's not a single cell. And in the face, it's rather simple, which is why this is kind of an early example, that uh, early success that we had, where the pre-pattern looks very much like a face. I mean, you can literally see where the eyes and the mouth are going to go. But that's no, but they're not all like that. Some are, are, are incredibly complicated, the same way that when you look at the electrical activity of the brain of somebody who's thinking about a cat, you don't see a little picture of a cat in <laughs> on, the, on the MRI, right? You have to you have to do a lot of deconvolving of the data to figure out how the mapping works, and this is the same thing. In some cases, it's simple; many cases, it's not. Huh. So, can I ask you to to take us back in history about where the sort of patterns were used to be thought to exist when you know the people sort of you know it's in the genes in some way? Was there a specific articulation of of where that information resided, or was it just sort of the argument? It must be there because it's not obvious where else it would be. Yeah, it's it's pretty much it's pretty much what you just said because uh, there's this there's this belief that everything is in genetics, and so in some sense it has to be there. In fact, I, I gave a talk to a bunch of nine year olds at a at a school once, and I, I showed them an egg, and I asked what determines whether it's a dinosaur, a bird, or a snake that comes out of this egg, and everybody, even even the nine year olds, immediately said, "Oh, it's the gene, you know, it's the genes, it's the <laughs> genome, right?" So, so in theory, everybody knows this, but in reality, of course, uh, when you look at the genome. And, and, and most people know this, but, but we don't really deal with the consequences of it. If you actually read the genome, you don't see anything in there directly about symmetry type or organ number or size or eyes or any of that stuff. What you see is a parts list. What you see is a specification of the proteins. Now, you could say that, well, that's the job of developmental biology to figure out uh, how you get from a parts list to the anatomy. But actually, a lot of people skip that part. And a lot of discussions of evolution, for example, when they talk about gene frequencies and then uh, uh, traits that get selected, there's a whole part in between there that is very still poorly understood of how you get to specific anatomical structures, and especially this business of um, knowing uh, knowing how to rebuild structures in novel circumstances is is very poorly understood, and and this is something I hope we get into because um, our new work uh, on the on the synthetic uh, living machines and also the reprogramming of the worm uh, body plan, all of these are telling us that um, there's a lot we don't understand about actually the input of the genome into the anatomy. Let's just sort of continue on talking about bioelectricity for a little bit. Um, we've we want to hear about your experiments with planaria, uh, these worms that have this amazing ability to regenerate uh, parts. So, as I understand it, if you if you cut a planaria in half, then the tail will regrow a head, and the head will regrow a tail, and and you can cut it into much smaller pieces. And it will regenerate often the entire planaria from even even a very small piece. Um, so th this is astonishing. I think a lot of people know this at some level, but the the mechanisms that underlie it are just just blew me away. And so maybe talk about uh, that phenomenon and the roles of bioelectricity in in it. 
Sure. Uh, and, and in fact, there are there are two two aspects of this that are even more astonishing that people um, hardly ever talk about. The first <laughs> is that uh, if, you, if you weren't amazed enough, uh, here's a couple more things. So the first thing is that if you think about the way we reproduce, so, so if, if, if most animals, due to a thing called Weissman's barrier, if we get a mutation in our body during our lifetime, that mutation does not propagate to our offspring. Okay, so, so we have this sexual reproduction that basically cleans up the gene, you know, the genome from, from, uh, from uh, animal to animal. Now, planaria, at least the species we work with, most of the time, they don't do that. They can do it, but it's rare. What they mostly do is rip themselves in half and then regenerate. So, uh, so, so a so single worm... typical way of reproducing. Correct, correct. Yeah. The typical mode of reproduction is, is the worm, um, the back end uh, grabs onto the bottom of the dish, the front end takes off, the middle... Oh, so uh, they literally uh, just rip themselves apart. They rip themselves in half, which <laughs> makes us feel less bad about doing regeneration <laughs> experiments because that's what they normally do anyway. Uh, and, then, and then they regenerate. So now you got two worms. But the amazing thing about this, if you think about it, is that they have somatic inheritance. It means that any mutation that doesn't kill the, the neoblast, the stem cell in which it occurs, propagates to the next generation. So for over 400 million years, these guys have been accumulating every mutation that happens to hit their bodies. Now, we see evidence of this. Their, their genomes are an incredible mess. They're, in fact, um, uh, um, um, uh, mixoploid, which means that you can't even really ask how many chromosomes they have because every cell <laughs> might have a different number of chromosomes. They have, uh, we, we don't even have a proper genomic assembly for these things because being mixoploid, it's, it's not terribly obvious what you're sequencing when you try to sequence these things. So think about that. They have, they have this, this incredibly battered genome, but 100% perfect anatomical fidelity. Every time you cut them with 100% efficiency, every single uh, piece is going to give rise to a perfectly uh, uh, scaled, sized, and patterned planarian. Now, what That's is that telling us about, right? How little we understand about the relationship between anatomy and genome when the genome can be can be mutated to that level and the anatomy is rock solid, right? That that's that's one thing. Another thing to think about is people um, talk uh, a lot about. Um, gradients, and, and, and we'll probably talk about this later on, but gradients and planaria and how, how a given fragment knows what's, uh, what, which head, end is head and tail. But that makes a lot of sense when you sort of cut out a middle third, which is what the pictures in the textbooks always show you is kind of the middle third, and there's a gradient from one side to the other. Think about a single cut. So you, make a, you bisect the animal, you make a single cut, the cells on one side are going to grow a tail. The cells on the other side are growing are going to grow right. a head. And this just before that, they were right correct. next to each other, right? Bingo. Direct yeah. neighbors, same exact value of positional information, and yet uh, they go they go to have uh, completely opposite anatomical endpoints. So what that tells you is that you cannot make this decision if you're a cell and you're trying to decide what you're going to build. You cannot make this decision locally. You cannot decide from your position what you're going to be. You have to talk to the rest of the tissue. And this became uh, the logic behind our experiment that started back in 2005 to understand okay how does uh, a head a, a fragment know where the head and tail goes or in fact how many heads and tails it's supposed to have. And it was all based on this idea that it cannot be local. It had to be global communication where the cells at the wound have to talk to the other tissues and ask, well, who's over there? Do we have a head? Do we have a tail? Which way are we facing? What do we do? So, so, so these, are, these are global decisions. And uh, the way we got into this is that we were already studying from our earlier work on left-right asymmetry electrical communication via these synapse, electrical synapses known as gap junctions. So these are just little, you can think of them as, as little... Um, almost docking ports or submarine hatches where, where, where two cells can, can line them up and they dock and they allow uh, small molecules to, or a current, in fact, to go from one cell to another. So we asked the question of could 
uh, planarian fragments be using this kind of electrical communication system to determine how many heads they were supposed to have. And so we did some experiments, and long story short, we found out that that, that seems to be the case, and that what we could do is if we prevent the cells from talking to each other electrically after we cut the fragments, they end up making two heads. So not forked, you know, not forked two heads the way you sometimes see on snakes, but actually um, kind of a pull-me-push-you animal uh, that, that has heads on, on both ends. And so, so that was sort of the first uh, set of experiments we did in 2005. We then actually characterized some of the bioelectrics of this circuit. And around 2011, we were able to show that this is the work of Wendy Bean, um, who's currently at the um, University of Western Michigan. She, uh, working in my lab, we figured out that we can basically determine whether or not you get a head or a tail at any particular region by controlling the voltage, that that the worm was using a kind of voltage gradient to determine where the head and the tail was going to go. But this is reprogrammable. If we change the voltage gradient, the cells are happy enough to build whatever. And this certainly uh, uh, dovetailed nicely with, with other work that was going on in yeah. the lab at the, at the same time. And, and just tell me again, how, how do you manipulate the voltage gradients? So so in planaria, so, so planaria um, have a, have a partic- another weird feature, which may or may not relate to their um, other weird features like regeneration and mortality and so on. And this this weird feature is that you cannot uh, knock in foreign transgenes. There is no misexpression. So there are no GFP planaria. There are no, you know, there's nothing like that. So in planaria, what we are left with is using uh, ion channel targeting drugs to uh, turn on and off the native ion channel that, that create the planarian uh, electric uh, uh, map. In, in frog and in other models that we work with, it's much easier because we can actually put in new ion channels. We can put in optogenetic channels, whatever. In planaria, we have to use drugs. Hmm. Mike, in nature, are there uh, sort of natural gradients, voltage gradients that these organisms have to cope with? Is this something that could have played a role in their ecology or evolution? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, basically, yes and no. So, so externally, there really aren't any gradients in the environment, we don't think. However, um, recent, recent data that we've been uh, working on suggests that some uh, parasites, and in particular some microbiota, so, so like bacteria that live on these things, have keyed into the system and actually produce compounds that trigger the host's ion channels to uh, alter the body in ways that are beneficial to the, uh, to the bacteria. <laughs> wow. So, so certainly there, the, the bioelectricity. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Huh. Cer- certainly there can be, but the majority of this is really um, internal. It comes from Evolution, basically, long story short, evolution figured out early on that electricity is a super convenient way to process information. I mean, it's not an accident that brains do this. It's not an accident that all of our computer technology is based on this. Evolution discovered really early that uh, electrical networks are incredibly convenient for memory, for decision-making, for distributed processing. So all of these are endogenous mechanisms that have been around since the time of bacterial biofilms. Hmm. Let, let me ask actually a related question about about environmental influences on uh, on on phenotypes, and I, I could imagine uh, some environmental conditions uh, altering these voltage gradients in ways that lead to plasticity in body shape. For example, a planaria at one temperature versus at another temperature that might affect something about the leakiness of the membrane or the way the the voltage gated ion channels work that set up the the bioelectric fields. So, so is there known plasticity that originates via bioelectricity? Yeah. So, so there's a couple of ways to think about this. On the one hand, uh, 
these these electric circuits have evolved to be really robust. So every, every organism uh, evolutionarily has been selected for the ability to keep doing its thing despite the fact that the potassium levels are going up time, and down. Right? Right. It's yeah. perturbed all the time. So they're, they're extremely stable to these things. On the other hand, uh, the plasticity is is there to be um, exploited, as I, as I said, by other creatures, but the plasticity also has a positive side. So one of the papers uh, we put out a few years ago showed that with a very simple, very uh, brief perturbation of the electrical network, you can take worms that have a normal planarian genome and cause them to regenerate heads that belong to other species of planarium. So their head shape, their brain shape, and the distribution of stem cells now become very similar to other species about 150 million years distance. So this is no doubt, I mean, we don't know how widely this is spread through evolution, but this is no doubt a potential mechanism for evolutionary change because it means that, uh, you know, you can you can basically, um, uh, the, 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 the large-scale morphology is so, uh, so modular that the organism itself can 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 really use this as during uh, kind of increases of evolvability and adaptation to new conditions and so on. I mean, you can you can radically change your body shape with a very simple uh, trigger. So overall, we think that one of the reasons bioelectrics is so important is because it provides a modular organization. It means that with relatively little effort, you can swap out major aspects of the body plan, like create a whole eye or, you know, whatever. Um, so so that I, I'm sure that has implications for evolvability. I mean, how different are species of planaria? The body form, is it relatively consistent in the behavior, the ecology? How, how diverse are we talking? Yeah, um, so so we specifically uh, looked at a planaria that have very different head shapes. So they could be round, they could be flat, they could be triangular, they could be, uh, you know, all, all different all different head shapes. The brain shape is quite different. Behavior is interesting. We hadn't published it, but we have a bunch of unpublished work uh, trying to ascertain whether these worms, in fact, uh, take on the behavior of these other species. And I, you know, I can't say too much because it's we don't have a, a published peer-reviewed paper on this. But um, that's certainly a, a very important important topic. There's a lot of diversity. We've done some similar things in vertebrates. So, so at one point we made uh, tadpoles with uh, tails that look like zebrafish tails. And in general, it brings up this issue of what's a defect and what's speciation, right? So <laughs> so a, a birth defect in one sense is a speciation event is in, in another sense, because it might be a perfectly reasonable morphology, especially if you look at, you know, craniofacial uh, shapes, right? Uh, you know, what, what what's considered a birth defect from the perspective of one standard species might simply be a very workable organism in a different context. So that raises that raises those kinds of interesting questions. Can we circle back a little bit to, you know, what what you had said about bioelectricity and especially its relationship to information, how it's so useful, how evolution figured out a long time before we did its utility for moving around information. Maybe speak a little bit about how specifically it encodes information about the body shape. Sure, sure. Yep. Uh, and, and then I can, um, the rest of the planaria story uh, sort of gives you a good example of how this actually plays out. So if you think about um, what an ion channel is, an ion channel is in at least some ion channels are voltage gated current conductances. So a voltage gated ion channel is a a, a, a protein that allows uh, different kinds of voltage depending different kinds of current depending on the cell voltage. So that's basically a transistor. That means that the history, the past electrical state of the cell, determines the future ion flow through the cell. So that's an immediately a kind of memory. 
and it immediately enables feedback loops, both positive and negative. So this is this is uh, for, from computer science. We know that if you have this kind of um, computational element, you can immediately make logic gates, and you can make very complex networks with really uh, interesting self-organizing behavior and and computational proce um, uh, processes. So bioelectrics really enables computation. It enables distributed computation because it means you can very easily connect networks into um, cells into networks. It also, you, you know, bioelectricity is a really um, a great example of a, of, a, of a central node in a kind of bow tie architecture. So there's been a lot of talk in biology about bow tie architectures where a lot of things feed in and then a lot of things come out, but there's one sort of functional node in the middle. Bioelectrics is great for that because if you think about it, you can get to a certain voltage by lots of different ion channels, right? It's not only one. And so, so it's not a one-to-one -one relationship between the voltage and any particular gene. This becomes super important in a lot of our work. And conversely, any given voltage can activate a bunch of other, let's say, transcriptional events, other cell behaviors downstream. So voltage is, is, is a really nice kind of uh, control hub for a lot of these things. And, and evolution has, has used this um, uh, really to a large extent. And if you want, I can, I can talk about how this plays out in planaria. But, but before you do that, can you just give an example of what you mean by com computation? So, so how would a cell network use bioelectricity to do a computation? Sure. Um, so, so one one example, uh, and and we just we just put out a, a kind of a theory paper explaining this is you might want a cell network to be able to determine whether the pattern of the body is or of a certain organ is correct or not. So this is a pattern recognition task. Now, I'll back up by saying that the question of what exactly is a computation is something that uh, people argue about vigorously. <laughs> I've been to conferences where we spend all day arguing about what, what really is a, com a computation. Sounds but, exciting slash distressing. <laughs> it, it really was. We, we At one point, we had a guy who was actually a computer scientist who was arguing that there is no such thing as a computation, which is really, <laughs> oh, really interesting. Um, but anyway... Uh, uh, so, so you could imagine a, a cell network that, as input, receives information from the spatial organization of some other organ, and then its job is to decide whether that pattern is correct or not. So, am I? Do I have the right number of fingers, or are my fingers the right length, or you know, is this kidney shaped correctly, whatever? And the cells have to decide that, and then they will have to issue an output that is either do nothing because it's fine, or um, grow some more in this particular pattern because you're not correct. So that is an example of a computation, and that kind of a thing can be nicely handled by an electric circuit. Another example is a very, a much simpler example happens with normalization. So if I take uh, a cell, a, a, a small group of cells in the body um, and depolarize them, one of the things that they're going to do is, uh, this, this is, this is basically an early form of neoplastic transformation. That, that is how cancer begins. And what the neighboring cells do is with their ga active gap junctions, they constantly try to override that. They basically sort of try to bully um, outlier cells into having a generally correct overall voltage. And this is their attempt to maintain uh, a, a coherent sheet of cells and not let any of them sort of go off on their own and revert to a cancer-like phenotype. So that, that, is a, that is a very simple um, kind of example of how bioelectrics try to maintain global state over single cell state. So, so are you saying that, that cancer involves in part cells disconnecting themselves from local bioelectric networks and sort of assuming their own electrical phenotypes? Is that? Yes. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so if you think about it, you know, the question, is, and we've done a lot of work on this in cancer. The question isn't really why do we get cancer. The question is why is there anything but cancer? Because what you, well, because think think about how, and and I've 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 got some movies that I usually show at talks of these amazing single cell organisms and all of the stuff that they do, and it's quite clear that individual cells are very competent and they handle them their their own little local goals with their physiological, um, anatomical, structural, and um, behavioral goals all in one cell. No brain. No other cells needed. They so do why fun. don't they all do that all the time, right? Correct. The question yeah. is, what could possibly uh, p- p- possess a group of these cells to get together and form, you know, work towards a much larger structure? And and, and we have some have some thoughts on why that is. But long, uh, you know, long story short, what happens is by 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 assembling into these electrical networks, they are able to take on larger scale goals, morphogenetic set points instead of single cell um, homeostatic set points like temperature and, and, you know, food level and so on. So by taking on these goals, they, they form large scale patterns that basically keep a lot of cells quiescent and in the body. And this but this process can break down. And when it breaks down, what happens to a cell that becomes electrically isolated from its neighbors it basically uh, decides that the rest of the body is just environment. You know, at this point, it's on its own. It reverts back to its unicellular self. And then, as, as somebody said, the dream of every amoeba is to become two amoebas. So at that point, <laughs> it, you know, I, I forget who said it, but but at that point, it, it you know, these cells are basically treat the rest of the body as outside world. So that that boundary, you know, that boundary of the self shrinks from from the boundary of the whole organism to the, the to the surface of a single cell. And they just, they go where they want. They eat what they want. They metastasize, you know, that's, and, and we've done a lot of work on this. So, so it strikes me that, that um, these same issues might arise in the context of the evolution of multicellularity from unicellular ancestors. And so, so are there sort of, uh, you know, bioelectric kinds of switches that you can imagine that might facilitate multicellularity? Yeah, yeah, you should you should come uh, work in our lab. That's that's a great idea. We I'd have, love to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. We we are we are going to try it. Um, we're we're working now with uh, uh, William Ratcliffe at um, uh, Georgia Tech, and uh, this is exactly one of the things we're trying to do is. Uh, 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 kickstart multicellularity using uh, by by providing cells that are still unicellular with a little bit of novel bioelectric machinery, and I think I think it's extremely reasonable to uh, expect something like that to happen. And 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 we we've done it we've done it in a in a slightly different context where we've shown that a you can basically trigger metastatic melanoma in a in a genetically normal no carcinogens no oncogenes um, genetically normal tadpole just by deranging the bioelectrics a little bit. But better yet, we've shown that if you do throw uh, human oncogenes like KRAS, P53 mutations into a tadpole where they normally make tumors, you can actually prevent the tumors if you artificially force those anim- uh, those cells into a normal bioelectrical state, despite what the oncogene is telling them to do, which is to depolarize and, and, and disconnect. And then and then there's a, a very um, uh, impressive uh, tumor suppression effect. So that's, that's kind of a forced multicellularity on cells that are trying to, you know, hmm. defect. So I want to, I want to, probe that a little bit more because it, it sort of suggests that whatever the however the bioelectric field is generated that it is and, and you alluded to it earlier that it is a pretty important thing to maintain within limits it's not something that can really bounce around a whole lot otherwise you know th- things just plain won't work um, so so maybe is it really that way but before before we go too far down that road can we go back to what you had said just a minute ago about your ideas about what drove the transition from single-celled life to multicellularity are you willing to, to sort of share what you're sure. thinking is there, or is this still a work in progress? No, no, I can, I can share. I mean, we're obviously doing more work on it, but the the first paper on this just came out in um in 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 one of the Frontiers journals. And it's kind of this uh, very uh, 
uh, wild uh, paper on the origin of the self and what in fact is a self and where do you put the boundary of the self because I think that's critical you know it's not a philosophical issue it's it's critical in in both multicellularity and cancer and so we can I, I can tell the following story and and whether or not the story is correct it will only be seen through experiment and so we'll find out but I'll, but I'll, I'll give you the hypothesis of the story uh, there's this uh, there's this this these ideas largely emerging in the in currently from from uh, somebody named Carl Friston in the UK that have to do with uh, active inference and surprise minimization. So the idea is that all living systems, in order to survive, try to minimize surprise. Basically, they try to build an internal model of the world so that when things happen, they expect it. They know what to expect. They infer patterns from their life experience. So if you think about a single cell trying to minimize surprise, one of the least surprising things around is a copy of yourself. If you would like to not be surprised by your environment, one thing you might want to do is surround yourself with copies of yourself so that you have a much better idea of what's going to happen. And so one uh, of the drivers of multicellularity might be this kind of uh, th this balance between surprise minimization and infotaxis. Infotaxis being the desire for more information, for more measurements that will refine your, your model of the world. So, so we have, an, and, and I do this work with uh, somebody named Chris Fields, we have a, a bunch of papers on this where we, we look at these dynamics and we ask, how do cells join up in order to handle their information tasks. So you can see this is a little bit of a different approach than a lot of people that might take this on a, on a kind of a focused on specific molecules or focused on maybe game theory and, and competition and things like this. Uh, I'm really interested in the information computation aspects and, and what are the informational forces that drive cells towards multicellularity? What are they measuring? And what are they minimizing that enables them to uh, most effectively work together? So I, so I think that is to a lot. And now I'm also not saying there's only one. Obviously, we know there are multiple origins of multicellularity. There could be lots of forces at work. But I think this is an important and underappreciated thing that it's really about what measurements cells are making and what uh, uh, set points are they trying to maintain through some sort of um, homeostasis. So you, you mentioned the frog example and, um, and planaria. But but do you think that that bioelectric fields play a fundamental role in organizing you know development and regeneration and and wound healing in all animals? I mean, is this is this a general phenomenon, or are you cherry picking you know some of the species that do this in especially profound ways? No, I think I think it's extremely general, uh, and I think it's very very ancient. I think it was discovered at the time of bacterial biofilms, as uh, the work of uh, Arthur Prindle shows. And uh, we know it exists in humans as well because of the human channelopathies. So, so there are a long, long um, list now of human channelopathies, which are ion channel mutations that have uh, specific morphogenetic defects. And, and it would be just completely bizarre if this is something that evolution only utilized in, in certain cases, especially given the high level of conservation of both, both functional and molecular steps. Now, that's not to say that there might not be animals that um, have reduced their dependence on this signaling system. So for example, um, not much work has been done in C. elegans on this. And I could easily imagine that something as mosaic as C. elegans might have decided that evolutionarily decided that uh, bioelectrics is just not crucial for its body plan. You know, some sort of um, chemical cell-cell interaction and a fate map may be enough to for what it needs to do and, and so on. Um, I, I used to think that about Drosophila as well, although now as of the last couple of years, there have been some really nice papers um, finding uh, a, a new role of bioelectrics in, in the fly. So, so I, I can't even cite that as an example anymore. So it may be universal or there may be species that don't use it. Hmm. So how do you 
put that together with, I mean, the fact that, you know, in humans, for the most part, amputations are, are bad news for us, except when we're young, you know, lose the very distal tips of our fingers and such, maybe we can regenerate. But regeneration is not, I mean, that there's a component of what we're talking about. And that's an advantage that's been lost by most, at least large organisms. Why? I mean, is it, does it become a complexity issue when you reach a certain size threshold? Right. Um, I don't believe it's a complexity issue. And and I think, you know, just to, to, to preface this by saying that bioelectrics does a lot more than regeneration. Yeah. So, so for example, uh, regulative development, the fact that you can cut uh, early embryos into pieces and each one will give you a normal embryo. And this is how we get monozygotic twins and so on. I mean, these, so there's a lot more than adult regeneration at play here. But, but so, so let's talk about um, uh, human re regeneration. No, nobody really knows why uh, humans are less regenerative than other animals. Although, uh, people oftentimes think mammals are not regenerative, but we can talk about deer where they regenerate um, uh, antlers at a rate of a centimeter and a half of new bone per day when this is happening. So so highly regenerative uh, adult mammal. But uh, I can tell you a story about why I think humans are, are not regenerative, but it's just a story. We don't we don't have proof of this. So, so well, we all, love stories. Stories okay. are good. So well, yes. I'll tell you the story. <laughs> so the story might go something like this. So imagine that you are a uh, mammalian uh, ancestor, you're something like a mouse, you're running around in the forest, and somebody bites your leg off. So unlike a salamander, the problem you have is uh, much more important than what happens over the next two months if you regenerate, is immediate, uh, you might bleed out, you might get an infection. And by the way, when you try to regenerate that um, delicate blastema, you're going to be grinding it into the forest floor once you start putting weight on it. And so it may be that what mammals have decided to do is to uh, basically go to scarring instead of uh, instead of regeneration, that the important thing right now for survival is to seal the wound, scar it, and uh, close it off so that you don't die right away, where that, that regeneration is just not going to happen anyway, so you're better off scarring it. it. It might be telling that the deer, the one example, good example we have, the, the antlers are not load-bearing, you know, you don't have to put weight on it, maybe, that, you know, that's a, so again, this is, this is pure, pure speculation on my part, um, but I think that's not an unreasonable, now, now there's another component to this, which is that um, most good regenerators are aquatic. And one, re one thing that might be involved here is that in dry air, it's extremely difficult to uh, drive the kind of electric currents out of the wound epithelium that you need that, that salamanders um, and other animals have no problem doing. I mean, regeneration is actually extremely broadly sprinkled. In fact, one of my most favorite examples is that even single cells regenerate. So there are people who work on stentor and, and single cell organisms. I mean, it's unbelievable. You can, you can go online and uh, see um, some, of these, uh, some of these videos where you take one of these highly patterned single cells, you cut it in half, and you, you would think, or at least I naively thought that, well, all the cytoplasm is just going to flow out and that'll be the end. So it, it comes out a little bit, then it goes, whoop, it comes like, it comes back, it gets sucked back in. And, uh, and the thing will actually regenerate. And this has been known for a really long time. And then it has to solve all the same problems of patterning and knowing when to stop and knowing what's missing. And, but it does it at a single cell level. So I think there is an amazing um, and still poorly understood scale-free aspect to this, that it's not just large cell networks that do this. Mike, so I want to switch now and talk a little bit about um, a non-bioelectric thing, or at least I think is non-bioelectric, and that's um, your recent work on um, vector transport of morphogens along nerve cells and the roles that those play in um, patterning development, regeneration, and and sort of where, where body parts are. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of this 2019 paper by Alexis Pytek. Um, so, so can you just 
talk a little bit about what, what you mean by vector transport and what, what's getting transported and what are those morphogens doing? Yeah, so, so the big picture here was to try and understand how uh, patterning information spread across the body. But one of the things that we wanted to, uh, to, to our model to reproduce is something that we've discovered that's basically pattern memory. And the idea is that we, we found in around 2009, 2010, that if you take a two-headed a flatworm with a perfectly normal genome, and you chop off the primary head, you chop off this uh, crazy induced secondary head, so all those tissues are gone, you have a nice normal uh, gut fragment in the middle, that thing will still regenerate two heads, even though it has a wild-type genome. <laughs> and, and in fact, in perpetuity, it will keep doing that as far as we can tell forever. So this, at the time, was was kind of an amazing finding because it's a new kind of epigenetics it's beyond the single cell level. It suggests that some information is, in fact, not in the genome, and you can you can reprogram it. We, we then more recently discovered a way to set them back so we can take a two-headed worm and change it back to permanently being a one-headed worm. You sort of erase the memory of the... Correct, correct. The... Erase, the two, erase the two heads, yep. But basically, we wanted to understand this process of, 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 of memory. So why do two-headed animals give rise to two-headed uh, animals after cutting? So we wanted to make a model that recapitulates most of the known experiments in the field and does so quantitatively. In other words, no magic. Every single step is, is specified to the point where you can <laughs> no just... no magic model. <laughs> no magic, which is, which is surprisingly rare. I mean... So, so, so you can predict novel cuts and how those will, will result in, in new planaria and the model... Gets that, gets that right. Exactly. And yeah. in fact, some very surprising reversals of polarity for some unusual yeah. cuts that hadn't been done and so on. So that's that's pretty cool and I think kind of unique in the field. And so uh, so so Alexis Alexis did this. She worked with a very talented postdoc in my lab, um, Johanna Bischoff, who uh, together they, they then uh, were able to uh, show that a, a, a proper model that explains all of these uh, previous results has to do with not only diffusion, but actually has this facilitated vector transport that we have a lot of data about the nerves, but actually my gut feeling is that this is not exclusively about nerves. I think it's more about cell polarity, like planar cell polarity that's probably present in a lot of the tissues. So, so two quick follow-up questions. One is just the mechanical details of, of what, what do you mean by vector transport? So what, what's doing the transport and what's getting transported? Yeah, first those, of all? those are great questions. Uh, so, so we think what's doing the transport is the cytoskeleton. So we think that basically, I mean, we know that, that in neurons, there's a in, and in fact, in, in, in polarized cells, there are cytos microtubule tracts that are used by motor proteins and so on. So we think it's a motor. And the reason it's active is because it's not just diffusion. It takes energy and it takes yeah. this kind of motor protein. So these are things like dynein that are sort Correct. of crawling along the cytoskeletal exactly. elements and carrying packages of exactly. morphogens, which they then, they then distribute. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, in, the, in the end, what's redistributed are well-known factors like Wnts and beta-catenin and so on. Whether those are themselves being moved, we, don't, uh, we haven't shown that yet. It, it could be that something else is being moved and then that you know sort of transduces into into relocalization of these other things but um but but the simplest model is that is that in fact uh, these these important morphogens are literally being shuttled along yeah okay and then the second thing is you you mentioned that this this vector transport idea interfaced with bioelectricity so what what's the connection there we discovered um is i'll just tell you how, how this came about so if you treat a bunch of planaria with a gap junction blocker uh 
some portion of them will make two heads in the next round, and those two heads are permanent. The For years, we've been taking the ones that didn't make two heads, and we've been calling them escapees. Basically, we thought that for some reason, they just weren't affected by the by the reagent. Maybe their thick th- skin is thicker. Who, who knows, right? And so we've just, you know, every experiment has some percentage um, uh, uh, efficacy, and we thought, okay, well, that that's just how it is. So... So, so a, a, a very talented um, a student in my lab, she was a PhD student, uh, Fallon Durant, she's now a postdoc at Harvard, uh, she did work on asking the following question, are those single-headed animals that arise from these, uh, these, these cuts, are they in fact escapees? Are they wild type? Are they normal? And so what she did was she recut them in plain water, no more manipulation. And when she cut them in plain water, what she found out was that in fact they were not wild type because the same proportion of them th- became two-headed as originally became two-headed from the octanol treatment. So it meant that there are, before we thought there were two kinds of worms. There were normal one-headed worms and then there were two-headed worms and that's it. There's actually a third kind. The third kind is a really weird phenotype called DC stabilized or cryptic worms. Cryptic worms, what that means is they look normal. They look one-headed. They only have one head. They only have nervous tissue on the right side, you know, on the on the anterior end and so on. They look perfectly normal. But if you cut them, they have a, 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 a solid chance of becoming two-headed. Once they become two-headed, that's it. Those will always be two-headed afterwards. But the ones that don't are still cryptic. And if you cut them again, once again, there you have a chance of becoming two-headed. So this is kind of, you can imagine drawing. And in fact, in the paper, we have this state transition diagram that shows you what kind of worm can become what kind of worm. And so there's this and so, and so it turns out that the reason that these cryptic worms can become two-headed is because they have a destabilized bioelectric uh, pattern memory of what they're supposed to do. And there's a couple of different ways to think about it. One paper that we just published uh, thinks about this as overlapping inconsistent memories in the visual system, like the rabbit-duck illusion, you know, that kind of thing, where you can have a ne- you know an electric network that finds it hard. It, it has to settle into one or the other, but they're sort of both there, and it's kind of bistable, right, like visual illusions like that. So that, that may be part of how it works. But the important thing is that um, there's this there's this bioelectric circuit that basically uh, tells the the we, we already knew this is a bioelectric circuit that decides head or tail, but the bioelectric circuit can be put in a state where it's bistable. It can go one way or the other after injury. And this is really important to me. This is this is where this really becomes like a memory because if you think about a one-headed uh, cryptic worm. And you look at the bioelectrics and you see that it's not normal. It's, you know, let's say it's got depolarization on both sides, even though there's no head on the, on the posterior side. You, what you see right away is that the bioelectrics is not a readout of what the anatomy is right now. It doesn't match what the anatomy is right now. Unlike normal worms and two-headed worms, the bioelectrics tells you exactly what the anatomy is now. This is much more subtle. This is a, this is a readout of what the anatomy will be if you injure the thing. It's like a latent memory that's that's in there, but it's not being expressed. So so now now we're to the point now where we can rewrite these memories in any direction. So we can we can wipe it, we can we can induce it. And and it's it's rather remarkable that a single planarian body can hold more than one uh, a memory of what a proper worm is supposed to look like, and it doesn't act on it until you injure it. That that thing is that that information is sort of latent. So when people ask where is the memory, we now know where it is. It, at least this. I mean, no doubt it has other roles. No doubt there are other things about head shape and eye number. We we have you know we we have to do more work on that. But at the very least, for the number of heads. 
you can see where the memory is and you can see that it's a kind of latent memory that doesn't get uh, consulted until the animal needs to needs to repair itself. And so, so the future, the important future goal of this research is to merge the two models. So we have a really good understanding uh, from, from um, Johanna and Alexis's work of how the two-head uh, memory is propagated. Okay, and this sort of this this permanent um, two-head state, and now we have from from Fallon's work and from modeling the work that we've done with with Chris Fields, we have a pretty good understanding of how the electric circuit works. The electric circuit, by the way, functions within three hours of regeneration. It is the earliest known step in planarian regeneration. All the stuff that happens after that are the things like um, you know uh, wind and beta catenin signaling and and notum and all these things. They they happen downstream. So the electric circuit makes a decision quite quite rapidly. And then sometimes these things get canalized into a long-term memory that is uh, implemented via neural directionality and, and this kind of long-range um, uh, transport. But in the short term, it's an electric. It's, it's almost like a. I mean, one is tempted to think of long, short-term electric memory and long-term chemical memory as as in the brain. But but that's the deal. And so now what we need to do is merge those two things into one. Uh, com complete model that that has both in it, and and that's that's work ongoing right now. We're in the process of putting that together. I have about a thousand questions to, to carry on with this, this line of thinking, but um, in the interest of time, let's try to zoom out a bunch. And um, what do you think about the evolutionary implications of such things? I think the skeptics would say uh, planaria are just freaks. Everything that you're learning in these these guys, it doesn't really transfer. They're all great stories, but you know, doesn't doesn't work for plants, doesn't work for elephants. I mean, what's your what's your thought about the implications of what you're doing in bioelectricity specifically for the way that we're thinking about evolution now? Yeah, I th I think I think that's factually wrong. I mean, people people have have shown this kind of stuff does work in plants. Um, I don't know that anybody's used an elephant, but um, for <laughs> for human you know for human medicine. Uh, these channelopathies are really, really important. And for example, Anderson-Table syndrome was um, uh, was known to be a, a CUR 2.1 mutation. And these patients had cardiac syndromes and craniofacial dysmorphias. And why they had cardiac arrhythmias was pretty obvious. It's a potassium channel expressed in the heart, fine. But nobody had any clue why they had craniofacial dysmorphias hmm. until, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, Danny Adams and I um, figured this out. And we published a paper on, on this um, explaining how this works. And so, so again, don't know about elephants, but from bacteria to man, it seems to be a constant uh, factor. And I think it's very clear now from the work on uh, basal cognition and the evolution of nervous systems where brains got their tricks. I mean, brains basically speed optimized dynamics that were happening in uh, cells and tissues long before neurons showed up. And what happened is that uh, bodies uh, used to make electrical networks that thought about uh, the configuration of the body in sort of morphous space during development. And later, this became adapted to thinking about the configuration of the body in three-dimensional space during running around and, you know, trying to escape predators and so on. So this is, a, this is an ancient system that is absolutely conserved from, uh, from, from, from bacteria to man. And we are now using this thing for uh, biomedical approaches. So we have work in our lab looking at um, limb regeneration in rodents. We're looking at uh, cancer suppression in human tumors. Uh, we're looking at um, uh, ways to uh, repair birth defects in mice. So this is absolutely not a worm or a frog-specific thing. This is meant to be medicine. Hmm. Uh, and in the and in the sort of more, I mean, I'm going to challenge you to 
to put the work that you're doing in the traditional context, you know, really because this is something that comes up on so many episode, episodes, the modern synthesis and evolutionary biology and the, you know, relative roles of, of genes versus other forces in, in shaping the phenotype and influencing evolution. I mean, I think the, the argument, the point that you just made about the timing at which the bioelectric field is really driving change versus, you know, the action of the, the developmental, expression of developmental genes. I mean, what do you think is a sort of... Uh, promising step in the merger of the types of work you're doing and traditional evolutionary thinking or just generally where we are in evolutionary biology now yeah so 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 i heard two different questions there so so one question is um where does does do bioelectric control sit with respect to the known signaling factors gene regulatory networks and everything else like during the life scale of, of an animal so so there, um, while it is true that uh, bioelectric states turn on and off all of the important genes that we know about, we have frizzles and winds and BMPs and all of that, it is also true that bioelectric uh, states are themselves produced by ion channels, which are encoded by the genome. So I think more uh, usefully than trying to ask what's on top, because because it's a whole cycle, right? And so so the physiology and the and the genetics sort of cycle back and forth. I think a better question, which is often asked by network scientists these days, is where are the best control nodes? And by control nodes, I mean where does the least amount of um, influence or input give you the most complex control of what happens? And I think for 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 my money, bioelectrics is is an incredibly convenient set of control nodes because with very simple inputs. We've been able to make eyes and trigger limb regeneration and reprogram tumors and fix brain defects and all of these other things, which suggests with, with, with very simple controls that what we're finding here is the natural modular structure of development. We're finding the subroutines in the software of pattern formation. And this is, to me, again, now, so my background is computer science, so everything looks like this to me, but... I think it's rather, I think it's rather uh, apropos that uh, this is very much a reverse engineering task. We've given these, uh, these animals and, and plants, which have amazing plasticity, our goal is to understand the software, which in part means to identify the hooks, the, the, the control points. You know, you could try to assemble a hand from stem cell derivatives and try to pattern the growth factors everywhere they go, but you know, how, how many hundreds of years is it gonna be before we can do that? It's much nicer if we understood the causal architecture of the system itself and said, okay, this is how the system understands where to build the arm and what an arm is, and here's the simple signal that is going to uh, cause it to do that. And so, so that's, so that's, uh, that's one. The other issue you brought up was kind of the evolutionary, um, context. So I think a good way to think about this is via the distinction of software and hardware. And a lot of people go crazy when I say this, and it is not because I think living things are computers in the, in the way that we have, you know, computers right now that you and I are using right now. That is not what I mean. What I mean is that there's a fundamental and deep, um, insight of computer science that uh, if your hardware is good enough, you are much better off programming it by inputs and by experiences, by signals, not by rewiring. In the 40s, when to reprogram a computer in the 40s, you literally had to move wires around. And now, if I told you that in order to switch from Photoshop to Microsoft Word, you have to get your soldering iron out and, and get in there and, and start moving, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd say, that's crazy. Well, why is it crazy? Because the computer hardware is good enough that it's reprogrammable. And, and I make the argument that biology is absolutely reprogrammable 
programmable. Evolution discovered this very early on. And so what we're better off with is this idea of, of thinking about um, the genome is not the software of the cell by any means. The genome is what specifies the hardware. The genome is what tells every cell what proteins it gets to have. But once you've made that hardware, much like any um, of the good uh, digital hardware that we make, it has a default behavior, which is what it'll normally do when you turn the juice on, but it is also reprogrammable, meaning uh, it, by, by, by judicious choice of inputs and signals and, and, and experiences that it has. Upgrading it will, your app. Exactly. It will move to <laughs> other, you know, it has lots of capabilities that it will go to other modes of, of, of being besides the, uh, the default that normally just happens when you, when you, when you turn on the, the, the power. So this, and this is the kind of thing that's seen, I, I don't know if you wanted to talk about this at all, but our latest paper on the, on the Xenobots, this is exactly kind of where this work is going is to take these cells, perfectly normal genome, no genomic editing, uh, and to ask, what can we reboot you into making with appropriate signals? Are you happy enough to make something completely different that's not, uh, in, the, in our case, frog-like? And the answer is absolutely. And this is, this is, I think, this is, I think, the right way to think about this. I think evolution uh, uh, targets the hardware, but the hardware is uh, amazing, and it. It, it encodes systems that have massive plasticity that actually help evolvability. And we could talk about this for a while. I'm actually writing a piece right now with uh, Raphael Eusti, um, uh, uh, Dan Dennett, and uh, David Haig about the use of uh, this kind of uh, plasticity to um, really make things evolvable and, and, and modular. Awesome. Well, super quick comment. I can tell you've been collaborating with Paul Davies because uh, we had a conversation with him uh, about six weeks ago in which we talked about this sort of software hardware distinction and he made some some you know sort of very parallel points. Uh, it was really great. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I do in, in the last 10 minutes or so, I want to talk about your your yet another mind-blowing paper that you published recently, this one in PNAS on Xenobots. And, and if I can just sort of paraphrase how I understand it. So you use stem cells from Xenopus frogs and you, you put them together in particular ways that were specified by a sort of computational algorithm that you designed to find structures that would be the most functional in, in the environments in which they were operating. And then you built these things and they worked, right? So, uh, Tell me, tell me how wrong I am about about that description of Xenobots. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, it's it's not too wrong. Uh, I, th you know, the big picture, of course, was was twofold. We really wanted to understand plasticity of cells, and we wanted to understand what they could um, be willing to to build when you liberate them from the constraints and the boundary conditions of a typical frog embryo. Um, and the next, and the and the and the sort of the bigger utility of it beyond making little frog robots to do specific things is to really understand how to motivate cells to build things in regenerative medicine. Medicine, but also to uh, adapt these kind of lessons learned into robotics and, and, and you know, communication systems and so on. So uh, what we did, and, and this is not so much about stem cells because the, the cells that we took were basically destined to become, um, to become skin and muscle. And this is, this is work that we did very closely with uh, Josh Bongard's lab at University of Vermont. And um, th also, it should be noted that this this particular the stuff reported in this paper is just the tip of the iceberg. There's lots more, uh, lots more there. So some of the conclusions I'm making um, rest not just on what's physically in this paper, but some of the other things we've seen uh, that that you'll be seeing later this year, hopefully. So um, uh, uh, Doug Blackiston, who's a staff scientist uh, in our lab, uh, very talented. Um, Developmental biologist and microsurgeon. Uh, what he was able to do is basically take some take take embryos, uh, take some cells, uh, take some cells out of them, mix them up in and put them in a little in a little hole, 
and let the cells decide overnight what they're going to do. And the cells, uh, probably for reasons that I described before, of, of uh, you know, um, uh, the, there is sort of desire to build multicellular bodies that, that, that uh, minimize surprise and all of that, they uh, get together and they form uh, functional novel creatures, we, which we call xenobots for Xenopus lavis, that's the name of the frog, and biobots for this kind of um, idea of making synthetic living machines. And, and these cells get together just sort of a, of their own volition. I mean, just just by the fact of being close together, you don't have to chemically treat them to make them. Absolutely do it. not. They get they, they get together on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, we we can provide in this paper um, what we only what we show is simply sculpting them. So after they get together, we sort of cut out different different um, regions to make the whole thing look a certain way. And then, uh, but but actually, we can give them other um, other signals to make them do various things. And uh, Sam Kriegman, who's a grad student at, with with Josh at UVM. Uh, what he did was to make a computational platform that evolves uh, in a virtual world, evolves designs for robots to specific specifications. Let's say you wanted to walk or something like that. And so then what we had was a very nice back and forth that was basically a cycle of uh, they evolve a, a design that they say will will walk a certain way. Doug actually builds it. We see, we characterize its behavior. We tell them what happened. They refine their model. They give us back um, a new design, and so and it goes back and forth. And the goal is twofold. One is to understand the rules. So what we really want to know is how do we determine what is going to happen and what shapes are these things going to make. And two is to make a computational pipeline. Um, that enables us to make things that we're actually interested in for specific applications. And it's kind of amazing, the, you know, so, so, so I think one of the most amazing things about these things, besides the plasticity of, of these cells, is that unlike most organisms on Earth, well, I guess all other organisms on Earth, these do not have a biological evolutionary history. The, the individual cells do, but they were selected for the ability to sit quietly on the surface of a, of a tadpole and keep the bacteria out. They were not selected for the ability to run around and work together and, and, and do all the things that they do. Whereas instead, they have a digital evolutionary history. They have an evolutionary history that occurred in a virtual world. They, were, they are the first living machines designed basically by a computer. And so their evolutionary history did not occur on, on, on Earth in a biological niche. They occurred in uh, in a digital simulation, and I think that's a that's a totally uh, novel scenario. So, so what do you envision as the sort of long term utility of of Xenobots? Like, you know, if we were to imagine a pipeline that is is producing things that are uh, you know has some economic or medical use, what what are, what are they going to do? Yeah, I, th- I think we we can certainly come up with short term. Um, uses for specifically xenobots. So so you can imagine things like they could go into the waterway and collect microplastic or report on toxins or uh, be used in a dish to, to micro sculpt uh, some something you're going to transplant into the body, you know, some some tiny thing. Uh, maybe they go in the arteries and scrape the plaque off the walls or maybe they hunt down cancer cells. We, we can come up with these kinds of things. I think m- the much bigger picture here is, is not that we're going to necessarily be surrounded by robots made of frog cells, you know, uh, taking care of all our needs. I think I think the bigger picture here is that once we understand how small, uh, uh, highly capable uh, goal-seeking units 
arrange into larger structures that do specific things, this will have an impact in regenerative medicine of, of, of uh, you know, regeneration of body organs and so on. It will have impact on new robotics, on communication networks, Internet of Things. I, I think that's the big picture. The big picture is really to understand how small things scale up into large goals. I think that's that's the big picture. But in the meantime, there are plenty of really useful things that I think these these type of robotics can do, and we'll certainly be trying to trying to make them. So I think the last thing, Art, unless you have any more questions, Mike, the last thing that we always give our guests the chance for is um, what else would you like to say? Have we left off anything that you really want to make sure you communicate to our listeners? No, I think uh, the, 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 only, the only thing uh, I would say is that, uh, you know, my lab focuses on bioelectricity. That is not because I think other things are unimportant. Certainly biomechanics, chemical, you know, genetic um, networks and all that are, are important. And I think the magic here is not bioelectricity per se. It's the fact that bioelectricity really enables uh, uh, evolution to exploit the laws of computation. So I think what, what evolution does is it exploits uh, physical forces to do very interesting kinds of computation, and that is really uh, the future of, of biology. I, I don't think we're going to be able to micromanage um, a lot of the outcomes that we want, let's say in regenerative medicine. I think it's much better to uh, understand uh, how the system regulates itself, and these questions of, of uh, unification, of selfhood, of computation are not, are, they're no longer philosophy. They are, um, they're, they're here with us in biology, and now these new techniques from, from synthetic biology, and better yet, synthetic morphology, are allowing us to actually start to construct some of these things and watch them happen in front of us. And I think, I think that's, that's super exciting. Um, and I'm just, uh, you know, thrilled. Mike's work spans disciplines. Before he was a biologist, he was a software engineer and owned his own software company. That background gives him a unique perspective in biology, and maybe even unburdens him of the baggage that many of we traditionally trained biologists bring to our own research. To Mike, biological problems often look like computer problems, and he argues that we should think more about genomes as readable and writable software, not hardwired programs that alone determine the form and functions of life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. We hope you're staying healthy during this coronavirus pandemic, and we hope that this episode provided a healthy dose of distraction from never-ending coronavirus coverage. We've got more regular Big Biology episodes coming up this spring, but we're also trying to bring you a few episodes about COVID-19. If you have questions about the virus or any other big biology topic you'd like to hear about, send your ideas to info at bigbiology.org. And please don't forget that we're a volunteer operation. If you'd like to become a patron, go to patreon.com bigbiology or go to our website www.bigbiology.org to make a one-time donation. Or you can just spread the word about the show over your social media channels and give us a rating on iTunes. On the next regular episode of Big Biology, we talk with Ellen Ketterson, a biologist at the University of Indiana who studies how organisms adapt to changing environments. With a bird like the junco and really anything else in eastern North America, it, uh, where it lives now is covered by ice. And that was only 15,000 years ago. So how did that bird manage to occupy regions down on the Gulf Coast during the last glacial maximum? And how did its biology enable it to move northward and reoccupy all of the regions that were ice covered? And then what can we extrapolate from that to try to predict how rapidly 
the junco and other organisms can respond to environmental change now. We, they don't have 15,000 years. They have a whole <laughs> yeah. lot less than 15,000 years. But whatever those mechanisms were will be put to the test mm-hmm. uh, to see whether they can keep up. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Michael Levine manages our social media accounts and produces the student spotlights. And Dana Baxter helps with background research. As always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thank you to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.